There's no, folks, there's no question that the Midwest played a critical role in the election of Donald J. Trump. There's no question as well that racism, misogyny, xenophobia, and Islamophobia, linked with economic anxieties fueled by globalization, played a crucial role in securing widespread white support for Trump that enabled him to win the election. And as we said already, the Midwest was absolutely critical in making that happen. That's Eric McDuffie, a professor of African American studies at the University of Illinois. The clip you just heard is from a talk McDuffie gave at the third annual Midwestern History Conference, hosted by the Howenstein Center on June 7, 2017, and co-sponsored by the Midwestern History Association. That annual conference is called Finding the Lost Region, and it's devoted to reviving the study of the American Midwest. Just the other day, the Howenstein Center posted a call for papers for the fourth Finding the Lost Region conference to be held on June 6, 2018. The problem the conference seeks to address is the utter dearth, the complete lack, it seems, of any kind of significant institutional support for the study of Midwestern history. I've had John Lauk on the podcast. John is co-convener of the Midwestern History Conference and founding president of the Midwestern History Association. I've had John on the podcast a couple times to talk about this problem. The first time John and I talked was back in June 2016 during the second Midwestern History Conference. Here's just a short clip from that conversation in which John describes just how badly his region, the Midwest, has been neglected by historians. If you look at how robust and strong and active fields like uh, Southern history are, or the Western history boom that took off in the 1980s, you know, a massive institution with great journals and a lot of uh, centers for the study Mm -hmm. of the American West. I mean, I tried to add it up a couple of months ago, and I, I think there are 15 centers for the study of the American West. Mm -hmm. And there's probably 10 for the American South. And I didn't even look that hard at the American South. There might be more. And of course, we all know about how rich New England is with all these local historical societies, etc. Because it has a very important history. But there is not one center for the study of the American Midwest Mm -hmm. in this country. Now, I can understand why there's not a center for the study of the Midwest in Arizona or Maine, but in Michigan, in Illinois, in Iowa, there should be. Now, John always does a fine job of making clear just how neglected the Midwest is. It's not just Coasties, it seems, who consider it flyover country. So evidently do universities in the Midwest itself. But of course... One thing we might wonder is, well, whether it really is a problem that many historians and, of course, many cultural critics generally aren't inclined to think about the Midwest on its own regional terms. After all, ours is a global rather than a local age, we're so often told. In our conversations, John has often focused on two points by way of reply. The first point is worth noting uh, is is one that seems especially important in the wake of election 2016. Region matters in politics, John reminds us. What the victory of Donald Trump has done is move attention to states in the Midwest and the Rust Belt. It's shown again that region matters. Region seems to have some effect on the way people think and how they vote. And the second point John often makes, though perhaps less obvious than the first, is of massive importance. It also relates directly to the significance of Eric McDuffie's work. John suggests that a renewed historical focus on region, on place, can be brought fruitfully to bear on the advances made by scholars in, say, African American history. Put generally, region can be brought into the fold of intersectionalism. It can and should be used to understand identity and community, as well as power and privilege. With that, we'll turn to Professor McDuffie, whose talk takes up precisely this question. 
He's introduced by Scott St. Louis, program manager of the Common Ground Initiative. McDuffie, after being introduced, thanks Scott as well as Morgan Eaton, who works at the Houndstein Center. He then thanks his family for coming. I want to leave all these introductory remarks in because they say something about the importance McDuffie assigns to his family's roots in the Midwest. His talk, which I'll play now, is about 45 minutes. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. It's my privilege to introduce Eric S. McDuffie, Associate Professor in the Department of African American Studies at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Professor McDuffie is currently at work on a book-length manuscript tentatively titled Garveyism in the Diasporic Midwest, The American Heartland and Global Black Freedom, 1920 through 1980. Drawing from original research conducted in Canada, Ghana, Grenada, Jamaica, Liberia, South Africa, Trinidad and Tobago, and the United States, this book is the first to establish the importance of the Midwest to 20th century black transnational politics and to demonstrate vibrant political exchanges between the heartland and the African world through Garveyism. Professor McDuffie's forthcoming book has already received significant attention. In 2016, he won a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship to aid with the completion of the project. Earlier this year, the project also won a fellowship from the American Council of Learned Societies. He's the first person at the University of Illinois to win fellowships from both organizations in the same academic year. Professor McDuffie is also the author of Sojourning for Freedom, Black Women, American Communism, and the Making of Black Left Feminism, published by Duke University Press in 2011. The book received the 2012 Wesley Logan Prize from the American Historical Association and the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, as well as the 2011 Letitia Woods Brown Book Prize from the Association of Black Women Historians. Professor McDuffie's presentation today is titled, From Fort Detroit to Ferguson, Why Studying Black Midwestern History Matters. Please help me give a warm welcome to Eric. Good afternoon. It really is my pleasure being here today. It's wonderful being here in Grand Rapids. Actually, this is the first time I've been in downtown Grand Rapids. Uh, been here before, but first time down here. It's a beautiful city. And it's wonderful being back in my birth state of Michigan. I was born in Detroit, and then came up in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio. Before I get started, I'd like to acknowledge and, and thank uh, people for bringing me here and for coming. First of all, sir, uh, to Scott St. Louis, I appreciate the invitation and helping to put my travel plans together. I thank Ms. Morgan Eden. She was very, very helpful with my hotel accommodations. I'd like to uh, give a special shout out. I'm really honored and flattered that my, my family came today to hear me speak. I'd like to acknowledge them and ask them to stand. First, first and foremost, I'd like to thank my parents, Marion and James McDuffie, my parents. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'd like to thank my children, Amir and Amaya McDuffie. They are seventh generation Midwesterners. Come on, guys, just stand up now. Indeed. I'd like to thank my cousin Ron Howell and my aunt Elizabeth Howell for driving out from Detroit. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you. And I would also like to acknowledge Ms. Deborah Jones, who is a subject of my book, but she also has become a good friend. Her grandmother is the image of her grandmother is the top right on the screen. That is a woman by the name of Louise Little. You'll hear more about her during t uh, today's presentation. She was born in Grenada, and she is best known as the mother of Malcolm X. So, Ms. Jones is the niece of Malcolm X, and it has been an honor to meet her and to get to know her family. So again, Ms. Jones, please stand again, please. Thank you. All right. 
Why don't we get down to business? Time is of the essence. Now, I should note, a couple years ago when I was at the uh, University of the West Indies in, at St. Augustine in Trinidad and Tobago, I spoke for uh, close to two hours. And uh, I'm proud to say that not a single person, including a, grad, uh, uh, a graduate student, left early. But uh, I understand that I only have about 40, 45 or so uh, minutes, so I will uh, keep this succinct. From Fort Detroit to Ferguson, why studying black Midwestern history matters in the era of Trump. And my plan for today, folks, is to raise some provocative questions, ask us to think very critically about the Midwest then and now in terms of its importance in building and creating this country as well as its global impact, not only on the black world, but beyond. And I jokingly say that in some ways, I feel like uh, the attention that my book project on Garveyism in the Midwest, I've joked around and said or half jest that the Cavs, LeBron James, the Cubs uh, World Series victory and the presidential victory of Donald Trump helped to shed light on the importance of the Midwest, help to uh, show why talking about the Midwest is so important. I, just a real quick anecdote, a couple years ago, I shared my book project with a colleague of mine based in New York City. He said, you know, Eric, this is a great project, it's fascinating, but I would never assign a book with Midwest in the title. <laughs> now, I should say that the person's not a good friend of mine, and now I'm not quite sure if I would even call him a friend per se, but again, it's amazing how when we're not in this region, especially on the coast, with how this region, of course, is considered flyover country, uh, the, the, the backwoods, what have you. But again, especially the presidential election 2016, I think really indicates highlighted the importance of the Midwest to U.S. life. And certainly what happened in 2016, I think, speaks to some very important themes that I will discuss today. There's no, folks, there's no question that the Midwest, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, played a critical role in the election of Donald J. Trump as a 45th president. And there's no question as well that racism, misogyny, xenophobia, and Islamophobia, linked with economic anxieties fueled by globalization, played a crucial role in securing widespread white support for Trump that enabled him to win the election. And as we said already, the Midwest was absolutely critical in making that happen. And I say all that to say that one of the things I want to do today is in some ways put the presidential election, our current moment, into a kind of historical context. So, why studying the black Midwest matters. In, in the introduction by Richard Wright to St. Clair Drake's and Horace Caton's Black Metropolis, a study of Negro life in a northern city, published in 1945, the famous African-American novelist asserted that Chicago had produced the most, quote, incisive and radical African-American thought, end quote, in the world. The book's final chapter of Things to Come looked to the future. Drake and Caton framed African-Americans in Bronzeville, the massive and dynamic black community on Chicago's South Side, as the barometer for measuring global freedom and human progress. They wrote, quote, so it, so it is really only one world. 
the problems that arise on Bronzeville's 47th Street encircle the globe. But the people of black metropolis and of Midwest metropolis do not feel that this relieves them from maintaining their own constant struggle for complete democracy as the only way to attain the world we say we want to build. The people of Bronzeville and of Midwest metropolis and of all their counterparts are intertwined and interdependent. What happens to one affects all. A blow struck for freedom in Bronzeville finds its echo in Chongqing and Moscow, in Paris and Senegal. A victory for fascism in Midwest metropolis will sound the death knell of doom for the common man everywhere. Although they framed human freedom and progress in masculinist terms, it is undeniable that Drake and Caton's broad assertions remain as relevant today as they were more than 70 years ago. African Americans in Chicago and indeed across the country are still second-class citizens. White supremacy, socioeconomic disparities, state violence and injustice remain salient factors in U.S. life and across the globe. The election of Donald Trump to the U.S. presidency and the rise of right-wing populist movements around the world attest to this fact. Despite this, right, this rightward turn, African Americans continue to fight back. Recent black struggles in cities like Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, Flint and Ferguson against police brutality, environmental disaster, the dismantlement of public education and, the st and state takeovers of municipalities have generated global attention and have inspired people around the world. Taking its cue from black metropolis, this paper will trace the dynamic history of African descended people in this region that has come to be known as the Midwest from the 16th century to the present. I define the Midwest as a distinct historical, geographic, and discursive region within the US that has played a key role in the making of this country's history and that of the world. The region is comprised of the 12 states defined by the US Census Bureau. Although the Midwest's history and culture have varied across space and time, several important characteristics bind together the heartland. From the 17th century through the 19th century, the region constituted an important settler frontier and transnational borderland. Beginning in the 19th century, the Midwest became this country's breadbasket. In the early in the early and mid 20th century, the heartland emerged as the site of the world's most advanced industrial manufacturing. Millions of people from Eastern and Southern Europe, the US South and beyond, came to this region in search of jobs and, and a better life. More recently, the Midwest has been ravaged by deindustrialization and globalization. However, the influx of new immigrants, especially from Latin America, the African world, and Asia continue to transform this region. My paper will focus on the significance of the heartland, of the Midwest, to the African-American experience, U.S. history, the African diaspora, and world. Paying careful attention to the gendered contours and global dimensions of black Midwestern history, I argue that studying the black Midwest matters for four interrelated reasons. First, the black Midwest provides key and unique insight into tracing the major historical developments of the modern world from the 16th century to the present. Issues such as settler colonialism, white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, slavery, abolition, migration, urbanization, industrialization, 
Globalization, deindustrialization, and mass incarceration. Point two, the Midwest represents the second most important region in African American history. The heartland has produced or become home to some of the most important black American writers, artists, and spokespersons who gained international fame. These activists include Ida B. Wells, Malcolm X, Louise Thompson Patterson, William L. Patterson, Fanny Barrier Williams, Jesse Jackson, C.L.R. James, James Boggs, and Earl and Louise Little. Artists and intellectuals like Margaret Burroughs, Langston Hughes, Toni Morrison, Randall Dudley, Gwendolyn Brooks, Catherine Dunham, St. Clair Drake, and Richard Wright. Musicians and groups like Aretha Franklin, Chuck Berry, Diana Ross, Charlie Parker, Howling Wolf, Bo Diddley, Youssef Latif, The Temptations, Muddy Waters, Bootsy Collins, Earth, Wind, and Fire, AACM, Common, and Chance the Rapper. My students dig Chance the Rapper, and so do I. And folks, I hope you're following this again in terms of the names and peoples, again, the importance of this region, why this happened. There's a reason, as well as thinking about politicians like Oscar DePriest, Barack Obama, Carol Mosley Braun, Coleman Young, and Harold Washington. African-American Midwesterners have birthed or played a key role in powerful protests and cultural movements that have profoundly impacted the local and global. These include abolitionism, the Underground Railroad, emigration, women's clubs, the Garvey Movement, trade unionism, civil rights, the Communist Party, the Moorish Science Temple of America, the Nation of Islam, Black Judaism, the Revolutionary Action Movement, RAM, the Black Panther Party, and most recently, Black Lives Matter. The unique encounters between political and economic opportunity, together with, virulent, with encountering virulent new forms of racial oppression and terror, help explain why and how the Midwest produced some of the most dynamic and globally connected black communities on the planet. Do our folks following me here? Yes, all right. Point three, the, the black Midwest constitutes a counter narrative to the prevailing framing of the heartland as a white, heteronormative, democratic, and enlightened region where everyday citizens, white citizens, enjoy upward or enjoyed upward mobility and political freedom. This position was was most famously forwarded by William Jackson Turner. The African-American Midwest, Midwestern experience powerfully reveals the Midwest as a unique site of opportunity and oppression. Fourth, and finally, the Midwest has and continues to constitute a key site for reimagining and fighting for transformative change on the local and global levels. Indeed, black Midwestern history matters, not only because it sheds important light, insight into the making and significance of the heartland to the United States and, and modern world. More broadly, the African-American experience in the Midwest matters because it provides lessons for rethinking the past and for imagining a future world different from the one we have inherited. Just a few quick notes. I'd like to say, uh, to say a few comments about method and sources, and then we'll move into the body of the presentation. I think it's critical for scholars of the Midwest, historians of the Midwest, to employ transnational, global, and diasporic framework. And I know those terms are not synonymous, but I think it's critical for us to, again, kind of challenge this kind of nation state or even locally-based narrative of framing of this region. In doing so, that helps to kind of challenge, counter this idea of the Midwest as provincial and local. Two, 
it's critical that we use an intersectional framework. Again, drawing from black feminism, drawing from black and queer of, of color uh, studies. Again, understanding how race, class, gender, sexualities, power, how these systems operate simultaneously and how they have shaped the past, present, and indeed the future. And point three, the importance of employing an interdisciplinary framework. Again, so not just drawing from history, but drawing from anthropology, drawing from English, drawing from women's studies, drawing from cultural studies, from a broad range of fields in order to excavate the past, rethink it, and again, to think about the future. And lastly, I think we need to think creative about sources, about archives, primary and secondary sources, and I can t I'll talk more about that during the Q&A. So that said, from now, I'm just going to uh, talk for a few minutes and uh, keep those key themes in mind and take it, take it from here. Folks, it's important to keep in mind that peoples of African descent have lived in this region that we refer to now as the Midwest since, since the 16th century. Black folks did not simply arrive in the Midwest during the first and second great migrations during the early and mid 20th century. Again, the African presence has been here for centuries. Top left, that's an image of, uh, well actually backtrack. So at, going back as early as 1539, a Spanish uh, friar named Fray Marcos apparently traveled through the Mississippi and Missouri valleys and with him was an African servant. Two years later, when uh, Francisco Coronado traveled through the Missouri and Mississippi Valleys, he was accompanied as well by an African servant. In fact, it, it, this, the, 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 this person could have been the same person. Fast forwarding to the early 18th century, of course, top left, that's an image of Fort Detroit. Fort Detroit founded, of course, uh, in 1701 by Cadillac, a French a French fur trading post, and as early as 1736, in fact, I think it's quite likely that Africans were there before, we have records of Africans, French-speaking Catholic Africans in Fort Detroit. On the right is an image, of course, of Jean-Baptiste Pont de Salve, who is referred to as the founder, or rather the first, first non-native settler of Chicago. And again, thinking about all this through a kind of transnational lens and framework, of course, de Sable is believed to have been from Haiti, from Haiti, and that he was indeed committed against slavery, uh, that he was uh, committed against slavery. But also, I think what is particularly interesting as well about de Sable, bottom left, is a picture and image of what Chicago may have looked like back in the 1780s or so when de Sable first arrived. What's also interesting about him is that he was on, was on cool terms among native people. He married an indigenous woman. He spoke indigenous languages. So again, this idea, again, thinking that, yes, the Midwest of this region that we now come in, the Midwest, we cannot forget that we are standing on occupied land, land that was inhabited by indigenous peoples, and that DeSalve apparently got along well with indigenous peoples. So again, a kind of alternative way about thinking about uh, the, the, the frontier, thinking about so-called Western expansion. Moving into the 19th century, that while, of course, the bulk of the African population in this country was located in the South, certainly, of course, by the 19th century, a small but growing and vibrant black community emerged. And in contrary, or again, to kind of challenge this common perception of the South as being the center of racial oppression and the North being this, this citadel freedom, certainly, of course, African peoples encountered their own virulent forms of racism. In fact, in some ways, that helped to that, that even prefigure the kind of racism that we would see following the Civil War and Reconstruction. So for example, Illinois, Indiana, the Michigan Territory, all these states, yes, they abolished slavery in their state constitutions, but they all passed prior to the 19th century. They all passed various laws to prohibit the entry of blacks into the territories, right? 
Black codes. Black codes were passed in 1819, 1829, and 1853 in the state of Illinois. That picture here is a photograph of the International Underground Railroad Memorial located on the banks of the Detroit River. And again, thinking about Detroit as a kind of borderland, as a kind of transnational space. The top picture is looking east towards Windsor, towards Canada, and the uh, picture on the bottom is looking west towards the statue. That's what you would see. Again, keep in mind that Detroit was the, was the busiest port, exit point of fugitive Africans escaping to Canada. And Africans, they swam, boated, did anything they could to get across this river, especially after, of course, the passage of the 1850, of the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act. So again, the way in which a, a small but dynamic black community emerged in places like Detroit, Chicago, elsewhere. Of course, the formation of black institutions. So for example, the Second Baptist Church formed in 1836, the oldest African-American church in the Midwest, again, formed in 1836, a church committed to anti-slavery. I'm proud to say that my great-grandfather was a pastor of this church. Oh, yes, indeed. So again, a center of black activism, black community building. Let's fast forward and move toward, move into the late 19th and moving, moving into the Great Migration. Top left, actually, I'm proud to say, the top left photograph, that's a photograph of my family. The woman on the right, that is my great-grandmother, Lottie Cook, or the, after she became Mary Chandler. And there was, there was a small, but again, dynamic African-American community in the Midwest, the Cook family, who were descendants of free blacks from Virginia, who made uh, themselves quite wealthy. In fact, apparently my, my great-great-grandfather, great, great the man uh, second from the left, was the richest African-American in Detroit. But the point is, again, that a small but thriving African-American community existed. That's not to say that it was not without class tensions and divisions. It certainly was. But again, black folks made it, or uh, rather tried to make it. At the same time, of course, the Great Migration, which first and second, which would bring more than six million African Americans from the South to the uh, North between 1915 and 1970. Of course, this famous photograph on the right there of, uh, of five young African American men on the South Side of Chicago, one of my favorite photographs. It, it speaks to, at one level, their pride, their, as well as perhaps ambivalence about what the future holds. Bottom right, of course, uh, rather bottom is a picture of Pilgrim Baptist Church, one of the largest African-American churches in the country then and now. And of course, that church was critical for the emergence of modern gospel music. Reverend Junius Austin, who in fact was a Garveyite preacher, who embraced the politics of Marcus Garvey, self-help, self-reliance, race pride, he, he understood the importance of both the traditional Southern cultures and the ways in which Southern cultures were changing and transforming in response to conditions in the urban North. And he welcomed gospel music, which of course was a combination of sacred music and the new rhythms and vibes of the urban North. And we'll talk more about music in a moment. But without question, the primary reason why black folk came up from the South was their search for a better life, for new jobs, and hope and freedom. This very famous mural painted by the Mexican muralist Diego Rivera, painted in 1937, part of the Detroit murals, of course, at the Detroit Institute of Art. This, this famous mural in some ways captures Fordism, this new economic order of mass production, the assembly line, River Rouge, that would bring millions of people to the Midwest. In fact, right quick again, thinking about the transnational dimensions of, of this, Rivera, of course, from Mexico, was a communist. His, his partner, his wife, Frida Kahlo, also a communist, was also, well, uh, uh, bisexual, 
transgressive and both of them transgressive in so many ways. And again, how this coming together, how Detroit became a kind of you know, a symbol, right, of economic, of the, of the modern industrial capitalist order. And again, this region, Detroit, Chicago, Grand Rapids, the furniture city, right? These were centers, that these were some of the most dynamic, not some of the, this region was the most dynamic, the center of the most dynamic capitalist manufacturing on the planet. The region, of course, is also the site, as we said already, of very, very important black protest movements, black spokespersons, activists, everyday people who are at the front lines of struggle. Top left, of course, would be Louise Little and a photograph of her husband, Earl Little. Again, Louise Little, born in Grenada. Born, she was a product of rape. Her father was a Scottish man who sexually assaulted her mother at the age of 11, producing her. Even though she was fair, straight hair, she was black to the bone. She identified herself with black people, and she took from her community, from her family in Grenada, pride, self-help, self-reliance, independence. She would move, actually, first to Montreal, Canada. And then that's where she actually met her husband and came into the Garvey movement. Again, Marcus Garvey, the Jamaican uh, nationalist with Amy Ashwood Garvey, co-founded the largest black protest movement in world history in the early 20s that claimed more than 6 million members globally in the United States, Caribbean, the Caribbean, Central America, Europe, West Africa, Southern Africa, Eastern Africa, and indeed even Australia. Garveyism, of course, was foundational to the U.S. black freedom movement, civil rights and black power, and foundational, of course, to independence movements across the black world. Both of them, again, thinking about this region both as a site of opportunity and a site of violence, the Littles went to Omaha, Nebraska, because it was a site of a horrific racial riot in 1919 in which whites accused a black man of raping a white woman. The white mob not only lynched the African-American, but they also went after, and this is a trip, they actually went after the white mayor. The white mob tried to actually lynch the white mayor of Omaha. It wasn't successful, but Garvey was intrigued with what happened in Omaha because black folks fought back with guns, and he, and he sent the Littles out to Omaha to build a chapter of the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Of course, in the middle, their son, Malcolm X, who would emerge as the most prominent U.S. black nationalist of the, the post-World War II era. Uh, top right, photograph of James R. Stewart, who was the successor of the Garvey movement. When Garvey died in 1940, James Stewart, who was from Mississippi, but again, part of that great migration, moved to Cleveland. In fact, Stewart moved the headquarters of the UNIA to Cleveland, Ohio. And ultimately, in 1949, he quit this country and actually went to Liberia, where he lived out his last 15 years, and I've had the privilege of actually seeing his grave in Liberia. Actually, I've seen his childhood's home in Mississippi, where he lived in Cleveland, and his final resting place in Liberia. And again, the ways in which Midwesterners, all the, the littles, uh, Brother Malcolm, James R. Stewart, how they understood African-American freedom in a global context. Bottom left, photograph of the uh, walk to freedom, the walk to freedom in Detroit, Michigan. In fact, if I'm correct, Mom and Aunt Liz, you both participated in this uh, march, right, which was the largest civil rights protest of its time prior to the 1963 March on Washington. Of course, this march was led in, uh, by Dr. King in, uh, in Detroit. And again, that, that bottom placard, Evers died for you, Medgar Evers. Again, the, the impact of 63, of Birmingham, the assassination of Medgar Evers, and my, and again, what was going on globally. And then bottom right, a photograph of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. Again, Detroit, Cleveland, 
Chicago, sites of heavy industry and of black labor militancy. If there are any graduate students in here and you all are trying to find a topic, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, man, does someone need to write a good uh, book or more books on this group? Absolutely. Again, all these groups, again, understood the struggle in global terms, right? And represented the fact that the state went after all of these people in various ways. Louise Little, right, was put in a mental hospital because the state identified her as in the state of Michigan. They saw her as being dangerous because she was independent. She owned her own land. She, she didn't take stuff from white folks. And she spent more than 25 years in a mental hospital. But it was her family who got her out, and she lived 20-plus more years uh, reconnecting with her family. The black Midwest in terms of music. Where would we be culturally, intellectually, without the brilliant artists, books, poetry, visual art produced by black people from this region? Of course, mom, aunt Liz, dad, right? Top left, The Temptations, right? Oh, yes, oh, yes. I, I can see you bobbing your head already, right? <laughs> Sister Rosetta Tharp, who was really critical in helping to kind of popularize gospel music outside of Chicago. Again, we so often think now we take gospel music for granted. Don't forget, there were a whole lot of, you know, good uh, Christian folks who saw gospel as like the devil's music because it incorporated rhythm and blues and uh, music from the juke joints into the into church, but she helped to popularize and transform the music. Bo Diddley, I mean, enough said, right? That Bo Diddley beat, the British Invasion, and also that Bo Diddley beat, that bump, 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 bump. That's a mambo beat, right? That's from Congo. Oh, yes, now, of course, he was born down south, but he made his way to Chicago, and again, these kind of diasporic influences. Bottom right, or rather center, center Gwendolyn Brooks, the most important figure of the black Chicago Renaissance, which in some ways was grittier and more radical even than its better known counterpart, the Harlem Renaissance, way in which it produced against some cutting edge literature, scholarship, artwork on black folks in the US and deep beyond. One of my favorite books, actually I think this is my favorite novels by uh, Toni Morrison from Lorraine, Ohio. Oh yes, from Ohio. Song of Solomon, and then again left, and again, in some ways, uh, shout out to my kids here. That's, of course, Chance the Rapper. Yes, you got it. That's Chance. And I dig Chance. Uh, he can rap. All right. I know time is of the essence. Certainly, of course, in the last 30, 40 years, the Midwest, especially cities like Detroit, Cleveland, South South Chicago, have become symbols of the urban crisis. That Everything that is possibly wrong, supposedly, with this country is, can be seen, can be identified in, the city, in these cities. Of course, here's a, this, this photograph or, a fo or various photographs of it of the Packard plant that is still standing, although it's falling apart, um, in East Grand, on East Grand Boulevard in Detroit. Again, Detroit is the only, only U.S. city that was at one point that counted more than one million people, that now counts less than one million people, a city that has been devastated, transformed by deindustrialization. Again, let's not forget again, so going back to the 20s and 30s, right? Chicago, of course, was the second biggest city in the country. Detroit, or, or rather by, uh, or rather by um, and, then, uh, and then by the 30s, 40s, Detroit would, of course, be the fourth biggest city Cleveland was in the top 10. Cleveland in 1950 counted more than 900,000 people in the city. Today, approximately 360,000 people in Cleveland, the city where I grew up. Cities that have been, again, tr just transformed by deindustrialization. Lest we forget that in the post-World post War II years, Detroit suffered from between 1947 and 1963, suffered four serious economic recessions. The city lost in those years more than 134,000 
134,000 manufacturing jobs alone. So again, when we talk about deindustrialization, all this, of course, started, of course, right after the end of, of the Second World War. And what is so ironic, especially about, and the word ironic perhaps isn't even the right one, but that, again, thinking about black people, it's, it, it was the moment when it was the moment when black folks started to get those good paying jobs in the mills and the auto plants. That's really when those industries tanked out. With automation intentionally, a corporations intentionally moving production to the servers, to the US south or beyond. Again, trying to, in no small part, to get themselves away from labor militancy. River Rouge going back to, of course, that mural by, uh, 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 by, um, geez, um, Thank you, yes, Diego Rivera, right? How it, how it captured, how it captured this new moment, but again, black folks being forced out. This, this is something else. Again, I, part, part of the conversation that so often gets, gets, gets forgotten. At the same time, again, getting back to one of our key points about the Midwest as a site for struggle a site for reimagining the future. And there's no question that African Americans have been at the front lines of struggles for freedom that have generated worldwide attention. Certainly, of course, Black Lives Matter did not start in 2014 following the death, the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, an inner-ring suburb of St. Louis, a city that, again, that at one point was in the top was one of the top ten largest cities in the country. Now counts about 320,000 people. A city that has gone through massive racial and class transformation. A city that, of course, was the site of major police and state violence against black people. Yes, Freddie Gray in Baltimore, Trayvon Martin, but really and arguably it was Ferguson, where the stakes and where the Publicity and the anger, as well as excitement and resistance, really galvanized. We saw those images, right, beamed across the world of black people standing up to heavily armed police and guardsmen. Top right is actually a photograph from, of a Black Lives Matter protest in support of uh, Michael Brown in Seattle, Washington. But for me, I think what's particularly interesting about, especially about Ferguson, is the way in which activists in Ferguson, across this country and beyond, linked Ferguson with Palestine, with the Israeli occupation of the West Bank, and how not only in terms of visually, in terms of officers, uh, heavily armed uh, officers pointing their guns at various protesters, but the ways in how protesters pointed out how many of those same Weapons were, that were used, employed in the West Bank were actually, of course, built in the states. From Palestine to Ferguson, from Ferguson to Palestine, occupation is a crime. Black Lives Matter. Of course, one of the criticisms of Black Lives Matter was that it supposedly didn't have a program, that it didn't have, it was too decentered. It didn't have a clear set of demands. Well, as folks may know, from July 24th through July 26, 2016, Movement for Black Lives called a national conference, a national conference con consisting largely of grassroots groups, organizations. And they put forward this really, and I don't know if folks have had the opportunity, this really brilliant cutting-edge program that, again, understood, understands black freedom in, in a transnational, in, in transnational and intersectional terms, calls for the end of mass incarceration, calls for reparations, calls, again, and again, frames all this in a global context. And don't forget where this event was held. It was held in Cleveland, in part to coincide with the Republican National Convention, but as well, again, speaking to the, uh, to the importance of Cleveland as a site of protest. In fact, the statement, and I'll read a quick blurb, quote, black humanity and dignity requires black political will and power. 
Despite constant exploitation and perpetual oppression, black people have bravely and brilliantly been the driving force pushing the U.S. towards the ideals it articulates but has never achieved. In recent years, in recent years, we have taken to the streets, launched massive campaigns, and impacted elections. But our elected leaders have failed to address the legitimate demands of our movement. We can no longer wait. Appreciating the African, appreciating African American liberation in transnational and intersectional terms, the vision for black lives asserted, quote, that patriarchy, exploitative capitalism, militarism, and white supremacy knows no borders, end quote. Which again brings us, and this might be a good place to wrap it up and to close. And again, to think about where we started. The Midwest, a site where we can see all the major historical developments of this world for the last six centuries. The Midwest as a counter-narrative to prevailing ideas or framings of this region as a democratic space open to all. The Midwest is a key site for African Americans. And the Midwest, finally, is a site for building a new world. So I'd like to end where I began by reading the passage from Black Metropolis. Quote, the people of Bronzeville and of Midwest Metropolis and of all their counterparts are intertwined and interdependent. Intertwined and interdependent. What happens to one affects all totals. A blow struck for freedom in Bronzeville finds its echo in Chongqing, Moscow, and Paris, and Senegal. A victory for fascism, a victory for fascism. In Midwest metropolis was sound the death knell for the common man, the common person, the common boy, girl, trans person. I added that everywhere. The Midwest matters from Fort Detroit to Ferguson. Why studying the black Midwest, why studying black Midwestern history matters in the era of Trump. Thank you. That was Eric McDuffie. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar and I edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest, which you just heard from, brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. To learn more about our programs, visit howenstein.org and follow Howenstein GBSU on Facebook and Twitter. You could also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.